Welcome to Help from Future Self. Hey, Archons. Welcome to another episode of Help from Future Self. It's the conversational Keyforge podcast by and for Keyforge friends all around the world. My name is Scuzzy Gruen, also sometimes called Alex, and I'm joined this week, as always, by my Keyforge coach and my good Keyforge friend. It's Boulevard Blake. Yo, what's going on, man? And returning for a record third appearance on the <laughs> podcast, it's our good friend SC Steele. What's going on, Sydney? Not much. I'm very, very excited about today's episode because in many ways it is an episode that is completely contingent upon being a part of a Keyforge community and listening to and considering Keyforge content. You were the one who pitched this, Blake, and it was because just a couple of weeks ago, our good friends Ed and Zach over at Call of Discovery did an excellent episode of their podcast where they had on Dr. Richard Garfield, the legendary game designer, creator of Magic the Gathering, and of course, as is most pertinent to us, Keyforge. Um, <laughs> before we get into this topic, if you have not listened to that episode of Call of Discovery, I'm going to urge you to, to go to your podcast player, whether it's your phone, your computer, whatever else, hit pause right now on this episode of Help from Future Self, bring up Call of Discovery, and listen to episode 63, came out on January 28th. It's uh, just a wonderful 50-minute conversation with Dr. Garfield. No, no, like, preamble, no postamble. They just get right into it and start talking. And Dr. Garfield has a lot of interesting things to say about the game of Keyforge. So we're going to wait for you while you go do that. We'll just, we'll just wh whistle. We'll, we'll have a little side convo. <laughs> All right, if you're back now, having listened to that episode, let's get into it. Blake, there was something very specific that stuck out to you personally in listening to that wonderful conversation. And I'm curious to know what it was. It was actually the quote he said is, uh, take ownership of your game experience. Ooh. He said it in many different ways, but it was something that was reiterated throughout. He said also taking responsibility of your own play experience. And this has to do with the idea of having chains on a deck. The now, handicap of a deck. Yes, that's what it is because that's that's what it does. And I thought it was so fascinating and interesting to hear him talk about this. And before we get into the discussion, I wanted to talk about the concept of chains in general, because I think it is definitely one of the most interesting aspects of Keyforge. And um, unfortunately, I don't think it is utilized as much or as often as I think would be prudent to really get an experience uh, with the game that it was intended. So uh, I can only say, uh, speak about this based on our play group, but I don't know for you, Sydney, do you have people who will continuously bring a deck over and over again and really log on those chains? Or do you find it is kind of a rotating door uh, where a new deck will be brought out quite frequently with each chain bound in your group? It's actually for us a little bit of a deterrent. If something is earned chains, that's, that's an honor, but then it, that deck doesn't usually come back. So then that's a common theme because we have that too. And I think there's a couple of reasons for it. One is sometimes it gets the change because it's actually so dang good that you don't want to bring it back because it feels bad with how well the deck played. So you have that weird, awkward phase where it's like uh, you have to get more chains for it so it actually starts getting to the point where, okay, now playing in this deck is a little bit more fair, but some people don't want to play against it anymore. And I think if you have like an, an actually really solid play group, 
you have that respect where you're like, you know what, it's not fun to have this deck in the mix because it is so strong. So I'm going to try something else. I don't know if that's the case with your group, but I found that is kind of the case in our group. Actually, it's more along the lines of the person who's playing the deck doesn't have fun playing it after it's gained a bunch of chains. Mm. Really? So it's Uh, almost like a self-policing thing. mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but so that's what I want to talk about is the the concept of chains. I mean, um, it's talked about in there, obviously, he says the the reason for it is to make it so that there is a even playing field. Mm -hmm. And uh, in, in our normal play, in terms of chain bound and stuff like that, we do not have the opportunity to really get it to that point. Because I think there's there's just that that idea. I mean, I've, obviously it's floated around where everyone commits to a deck and keeps playing, but then you get a deck that really isn't winning. So you don't want to stick around to see at what point does it actually start winning. And then you have the same thing with uh, the decks gaining chains and and whatnot and seeing where the disparities go and, and where that level suddenly kicks in that everything's starting to be even. Uh, but I mean, there's other ways we can utilize chains. Of course, there's adaptive, I think is the most common way. And mm-hmm. our personal favorite, Alex and I, and I don't know if you've had a chance to try the Sydney, but it's the sealed adaptive, where Ooh. you only see the houses and you bid on chains at the start. So you know what your deck is and if it's um, if it's good or if it's crap, and then you can use that <laughs> to your advantage to decide whether you will or won't play it. Plus the psychological aspect in that that bidding as well. Yeah. Do you see a lot of chains being bid if you just see the opponent's houses? Uh, well, it's it's more has to do with your own deck. So the way that concept mm. works is if you know you have a bad deck, because you know in Seal, you can open a deck, you're like, oh, this deck isn't very good, which right. is also something that Dr. Garfield talked about is that that's part of um, the the reason the game exists is because it's, you get that challenge, and he thinks it's very important to be put under those challenges, as he mentioned and so that's the idea is like, you know, you don't have a good deck and it gives you the opportunity to be like, okay, do I just want to instantly give this to my opponent because I know it's not going to be good? Or do I want to do a thing where like I get them to take their deck with some chains? Like there's Ooh. there's a psychological component to it, which is really fun. And then it also gives the opportunity to play with chains, which is something I feel that is not done frequently enough because it's very hard to do uh, games with chains like a, an adaptive in a weekly event because of the fact that those are best of three games and which go much longer, which means if it's an evening event, it's less likely that it can fire type of thing. I'm going to throw out a lukewarm take here. I think that chains, despite being something that's built into the game and obviously something that was very deeply considered by Darker Garfield at the design stage as an important aspect of Keyforge and how Keyforge should work, it's so disused that I think that there is, I'm not going to say a majority, but a significant number of Keyforge players who actually don't understand how chains work. And it's because- Or maybe have never used it. Yeah, yeah. Very true. If they've um, joined the game since we went into the pandemic and they've only found TCO or or the Keyforge Facebook group and they've not actually played at an official chain bound, they may have never touched a chain. Very, well, very true. They will, but it'll be a maximum of, I think, four chains, right? That's the most chains that are given from a card, which is uh, oh, gateway good point. to this, Like binding it? irons. Ah, uh, mm-hmm. yes, yes, yes. Yeah, but- that's the only experience I have with chains, but the actual concept of having a deck carry chains or bidding chains type of thing is uh, is very different. And I know people, mm-hmm. like the idea of bidding on a deck with chains is actually very terrifying for some people because there was so little opportunity to be in that. And that's why we kind of in our play group, Sydney, we almost like 
had this default before the pandemic hit where when we were playing sealed, we were only playing sealed adaptive. We stopped just playing regular seal because it took away any feels bad. If you get a bad deck and you're just getting rolled the whole night. And then it also created the ability to flex those muscles of uh, learning how to play different decks on the fly, learning the idea of like, you can play reversal in that you can play adaptive or you're playing just regular sealed. Like there's so many different, um, elements to the game that can be utilized in that one sealed aspect that it, we just found it was the end all be all for how you should be playing sealed. That sounds super fun. We should definitely try that around here. Mm-hmm, you should. So one of the things that I think was really fascinating about that conversation, and we're going to talk a little bit more about chains in relation to this, is the fact that Dr. Garfield acknowledged in his conversation with with the called Discovery folks that Keyforge is not fair and was not designed to be fair because one of the things that he he literally says in that conversation is he thinks that trying to make games too balanced and too fair sands all the interesting things off them. It makes Absolutely. it so that everything becomes kind of too uniform. And if I was to, you know, just speculate, um, I would think that perhaps his experience as a designer of another very popular collectible card game uh, perhaps uh, sort of may perhaps have, have influenced his thinking in and around this because, you know, he, he outright says, you know, at various points during the interview when talking about his experience with MTG that oftentimes MTG is sort of a game that it settles to a median of what is accepted as being the most you know, best way to play at that current moment. And it's only through the addition of new cards that that changes, which is how MTG works. But it certainly doesn't sound like that's what he was looking for with Keyforge. What did you guys think in listening to what Dr. Garfield had to say about the idea of maybe Keyforge isn't supposed to be fair? Maybe every deck isn't supposed to be equal. He was comparing a little bit to board games as well because he mentioned liking the concept of the unbalanced board game because Mm -hmm. it might make it more challenging, but it's more fulfilling to win. So when you are playing with a handicap, it makes it more fulfilling and satisfying to beat your opponent if you were otherwise just going to stomp all over them. I think that Chains introduced that in a way. Yeah, and and then also the the concept of what he was saying is like, not all decks being good and and creating that that challenge of having to play a deck in that in that uh particular vein i think it it's it's very interesting because i think it falls in a few categories your player skill level is one of them so obviously someone who is a more skilled player getting a deck that isn't as good provides a its own form of balance because now they have to operate something that would be below standard for what is deemed a good deck Mm -hmm. and show that they can pull some tricks by uh you know utilizing that skill that they do have and then on the other side you have players who maybe um are of less skill due to experience or maybe lack of understanding if it's a new set any of those things that maybe make them understand the game differently where they get a better deck and then that creates also the ability for them to to operate at a higher level and then you have everything that falls in between that, which is so interesting, where you get someone who's a really good player and then gets the hot fire deck and it's just like, you're like, wow, that that didn't go very well. And I just find that so fascinating about this game because uh, speaking of magic in the same sort of idea of like sealed, for example, because I think that's what we're kind of talking about here, mm-hmm. is um, you have a, a sealed in magic where you draft and there's not only the ability to choose your cards, but then there's building the deck after you've chosen your cards. So there's so many levels of skill that go into that. 
and the disparity is so much greater where i think in keyforge it's like how well can you read something how well can you pick it up um it's it's just so fascinating to know that there isn't that even playing field and that's okay and it wasn't intended to be that way one of the things he talked about that really sparked my interest, it didn't quite make it into the game, but I, I foresee it coming in the future. But cards that are specifically bad to have in your deck or uh, cards that you would shuffle into your opponent's deck. So when it comes up, a, a card that might have you do something that negatively affects you. But he he talked about the fact that it was unused. And I, I think that they've kind of shifted towards adding some of those in the deck but just in a way that are a lot, a lot more subtle. Like, have either of you ever played Dominion? Yes. Dominion introduced that concept at one point where yep. it was possible to introduce like poison cards into your opponent's deck to to stymie their plans for a certain cost, which I always thought was an interesting dynamic. And it's certainly something that I would I'm interested in seeing in Keyforge. I think the thing that I found so fascinating about this is that you can see this real thread in Dr. Garfield's thinking about game design. Um, one of the stories, and I don't want to spend a huge amount of time talking about MTG, but you literally can't not talk about <laughs> MTG when you're talking about Richard Garfield. One of the stories that always stuck with me was the idea that when he first designed that game, he thought there's no way that you're going to have a huge amount of access to additional cards. You're going to have access to whatever cards you can afford. And him being like a broke college student at the time was probably thinking like everybody who wants to play this game is going to be on a budget. So you're going to have access to what you can buy and what you can trade to the other people in your play group. And there's going to be no such thing in his imagination as buying singles and mm-hmm. being able to optimize decks. And of course we know almost instantaneously that was not the case. MTG blew up and suddenly there was an entire market dedicated to it and suddenly in some ways the game became very much a pay to win scenario or at the very least a pay for a huge advantage scenario and it almost feels like when he was approaching Keyforge he was like how can I make it so that there's still that disparity there's still that sense of you know not everybody is on even footing but also make it so that it's not as easy to game the system just by having access to more and that almost seems like it goes right into the heart of Keyforge in a way that I had never really considered at all. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. That that is really interesting because um, that's definitely what drew me into Keyforge was I I did not like that aspect of like you just buy what's hot or you're just basically playing for the sake of seeing what you can possibly do, but your 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 chance of winning is so much more limited or unrealistic in a way mm-hmm. and. Keyforge is more about you have what you have and you figure it out, which is is like the concept you just talked about. It's like what you can afford or what's there is what you you can utilize. And I think that is just such a fascinating concept in today's game, card game industry, because it is like the people who don't gravitate to Keyforge literally hate it because of that fact. They're like, oh, I wish this was in my deck and it was like magic where I could just do this or like Pokemon where I could just swap this in and make it better. Like it's such an interesting like you like they can't accept that you have to figure out how to make this work concept it's it's really interesting some decks are just objectively bad like they don't have a way to generate amber or they can't prevent your opponent from generating amber so you just have to get the feel for what the deck does and decide whether it's worth continuing to play or not but not all decks are balanced simply because some just don't have the power to win mm-hmm. yeah that's very true. very true one of the things that this really got me thinking about 
um, was the idea of we've had this conversation eight million times. I've seen it in every KeyForge community, like online that I've ever been a part of. I've seen it on Twitter and I've seen it on Reddit and I've seen it on Discord, which is the what do you do with your bad decks? And it's always like, a, oh, well, maybe you take them apart and you, you know, use it for like this niche draft format because that's the <laughs> thing we've done. Or maybe you uh, you save it for reversal or, you know, you do this, that, the other thing. And all of a sudden I was thinking about what if you just play the worst deck possible to see how long it takes you to get a win with it, to see if it's even <laughs> possible to get a win with it? What what would actually be the downside of doing that? I mean, obviously that's going to take some patience, but isn't there something like deeply Keyforge-ish about the idea of playing a obviously underpowered, obviously doesn't have what it takes deck in the hopes that you can somehow ferret out enough from it to be able to come through with a victory at some point? I think reversal was their solution to that. Something that's mm -hmm. bad enough that it would literally never win a game has to be played in a reversal format to have any success. Yeah, it's reversal is so funny to me because you have all these decks for reversal that you're like, oh, this would be good for reversal. And then when you actually play the deck against um, like other bad decks, it's like, oh, this deck's actually not bad enough. It's like <laughs> such a funny concept, but it's so interesting at the same time. And it there aren't a lot of places that actually play reversal. Our home game store only did it once or twice in the whole life of in-person Keyforge. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a format that certainly isn't as popular as the number of times it gets brought up would have you believe. And I think that's largely just because people don't necessarily feel like they have good reversal decks or the idea of playing bad decks seems antithetical to them. Whereas one of the things that this conversation sparked in me was the idea of, you know, Play a bad deck, play a mediocre deck, just play the deck and see what you can do with it, which, you know, I think goes right into a, a concept that we talk about all the time on this podcast, which is just play your decks. It doesn't have to look like the most winning deck, but who knows what you'll actually discover just by playing what looks like an underpowered deck. Who knows what experience you might have by going up against like the most heatonous desk deck in the entire universe with a medium level deck or a slightly underpowered deck. What can you learn from that? What kind of experience can you have in that uh, in that scenario that increases your understanding of Keyforge? One of the things yeah, that also excited me about what Richard Garfield was talking about is when he went into the math, it was really interesting mm. to hear that he didn't even think it was worth handing a deck a handicap until after you've played three games. So yes. it's so possible for a game, for a deck to lose two decks two games in a row that if you assign it a handicap before playing three games, it doesn't necessarily have the right meaning behind it. No, it's so true. Uh, I have, that's what I have in my notes is like the idea for when you talked about the third game, you're actually playing for stakes because that game is going to determine whether you're adding chains or not to the deck. So it matters so much more what happens in that game. Now here's a question for both of you. Um, Chains as a system. Um, a question occurred to me while I was listening to, to Dr. Garfield talk, which was, do you think that if chaining was more aggressive, that it would be a concept that would have to be more widely adopted and people would have to sort of accept as part of the game, as opposed to now when like it's 
it's enough that like a really good deck can sort of get by with chains for a little while and eventually you can move on to something else after you've gotten the most out of it. But I almost feel like a more aggressive system of chaining might actually force people to stick with chain decks because they don't want to just have to like, all right, well, I guess I played this, you know, however many times and now I have to give it up forever because of the chains. It might almost have the effect of making people be more inclined to play chained decks. So I forget where I heard this, so I can't take credit, but there was an idea floating around at one point where instead of having chains inflict the the own the player of the deck to draw less cards, it would actually allow the opponent to draw an additional card. The same concept, but the opposite. So if I have two chains, mm. two turns in a row, my opponent would draw an extra card. So it wouldn't necessarily negatively affect me, but it would help my opponent in the same way of giving them the boost they might need to beat me. I just think that that would be a little, a little less scary, a, a reason for me not to play my deck instead of a, a reason for me to, to not have fun playing it. That's interesting because your because your deck can still do what it does, but it's like can can does this advantage? It's because it's still the concept of an advantage, but instead of it being a hindrance on you, it's a bonus for your opponent. I I kind of like that idea. That is interesting. It's like a reverse chaining almost. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. From a philosophical standpoint, do you think that you can actually tell people that just KeyForge isn't fair? Like when you're trying to get them <laughs> into the game, do you think that that's a selling point? I almost feel like it is. Um. Uh, and maybe it's just because I got so hype, like listening and re-listening to this interview just by how forthright it was because it opened up my brain to ideas that I had not considered before. And there's almost the part of me that like wants to try and sell people on the idea of like, look, this is not a balanced game. It's not a game that is designed in such a way that everybody can go absolutely toe to toe with whatever they open. That's a myth. It was never true and it was never intended to be true. This is an experience that is handled like the the fairness uh, aspect of it is handled by a system of handicaps. And you'll come to that when you come to that. But if you go into it with the idea of it's not always going to be a fair fight, um, sometimes you'll be the one holding a rock when somebody else has got paper. Sometimes you're going to be the one holding a rock when your opponent has scissors and vice versa. You know, I, I almost feel like presenting it in that light is more of a realistic and I guess in some ways, more appealing idea to me. I try and sell it on the idea of fun because fair is an idea of, will I have a chance to win if I play this deck? Fun is, will I enjoy playing this deck whether I win or lose? If, if I'm losing a game, but I have a chance of coming back, that feels good to me even if I don't end up winning. So it's it's definitely a, if this deck isn't good enough to beat another deck, but it's still fun to play. That's the concept I try and sell people on. See, I my thoughts on this is I like it, but I think not everyone responds to that that ideology because some people really like winning. Mm-hmm. And I think that the issue with people getting into the game is the fact that you have the chance of opening a really bad deck. And that's why I've kind of been working on a concept with Carl from CKM about trying to figure out, uh, we're trying to come up with basically a, if you want to get into Keyforge, play these decks on TCO to start your your career off. Hmm. So you get a feel for different types of decks that exist. And then once you know how like a, a pretty decent to good deck plays, you understand like, oh, this is what the game's like and it's fun. And then when you open up decks that aren't good or that aren't up to the style of play that you like, 
then you understand that's not that the game is bad. It's just this deck is not for you because you've had experience with something that is more tried and true. And I and I do think matchups is very important. Like I just taught my friend Heather how to play Keyforge. And I literally chose a deck based on these parameters we were doing. And I gave it to her and she picked the game up in like two games, like knew how to play perfectly, never having played the game before. And I chose another deck that I thought was a little weaker, but we went down to like, both having two keys forged and then it was like you know i call this check chicken where <laughs> each person's going into check and taking the other off and who's going to not have that answer first and we had it like every game we literally have one more game left we've gone two and two and we have one more game left to see who can go and it's it's just such a good idea you introduce concepts like i think if you can introduce untamed burst shadow steel and then logos like a uh, cycle as the someone's very first introduction to the game, if that's the deck you play, mm-hmm. I think you love Keyforge. Period. Like that is the best way to to learn the game because you're getting to see cards, you're getting to see what it's like to generate a lot of Ember, and you're also able to control your opponent from going in and out of check, basically, so that you're staying in the game. I think that is the quintessential way to introduce someone to the game of Keyforge, so they understand how it plays, and then everything else that comes along with the randomness is not going to be a feels bad and turn you off from the game because you now understand, oh, this is how the game works. And then the other concepts come down the road. I love that. I have to imagine that the uh, creators of TCO had something like that in mind when they added the decks that are default to TCO. Mm-hmm. When you create a game, you can pick your deck and then below that, there are some grayed out ones that are always available. They have mm-hmm. to have come up with some sort of criteria to have picked those decks. I hope so. I hope it's not random. <laughs> yeah, they, they must have chosen them. There has to be a hundred percent something that was specifically uh, the, some way that they specifically picked them. Um, if you have not listened to that episode of Call of Discovery, please, 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 please go and listen to it. And you should always be listening to Call of Discovery because it's a wonderful podcast. An enormous shout out to our good friends Ed and Zach. Uh, hopefully, that will get the opportunity to chat with them on a podcast again soon. If you never listened to the crossover episodes of Call of Discovery and Help from Future Self, Help of Discovery, Call of Future Self, (laughs) some variation thereof, I would encourage you to go listen to them because we had such a great time. Real uh, brothers and sisters in arms we are. Um, With all of that said, we cannot end an episode of Help from Future Self without the titular segment. Help Help from Future Self. Self. I got one for us this week, and it's a very, very simple one. And it's about a very, very unassuming card that I had not thought about a lot until it played a huge role in two games that I played over the course of the last week. Watch out for that font of the eye. Mm. Font of the eye, because it's Omni, um, requires you to defeat a creature in order for it to be used. But I was playing against, I somehow ended up playing two games uh, over the course of the last seven days in which an opponent had multiple fonts of the eye in their deck. So they had two. And my goodness, for the cost of them sacrificing one of their creatures to kill one of my creatures, they could capture two amber per turn on any house that they called. And it was ridiculous. I mean, any kind of removal allowed them to get it off. Any kind of fight that they did into my uh, battle line allowed them to get it off. So it was just one of those things where, and because, you know, the deck I was playing in both cases is a deck that I find often squeaks out that victory at the very end. You go up to seven Amber while your opponent's at five. And even if they can get up to seven, then they can't take you off. It, It was just a thing that I couldn't get past. Every single turn that I went up and would use, you know, whatever I had to get myself up to that third key amber um, and take them down, 
they could just come back the next turn, kill one of my creatures either through removal or through something else, and then capture two amber. And it just it, it ultimately didn't didn't end up working out for me in both those cases. Super fun games, but it was a card that I had never given much thought to before. And yeah, in multiples, that thing is a disaster. I hate it. <laughs> Goes to show that artifact control is super important. Still, well, to here's, this day. here's the other thing is at what point do you recognize that you should stop playing creatures because you know when you put creatures on the board, you're actually giving them an opportunity to control your ember? Because Pile of Skulls creates the same thing. Because that's something I think about sometimes. You just stop playing creatures because you know once you put something on the board, they can potentially get you. Yeah, absolutely. A great thing to think about. Sadly, a lot of my uh, my amber control in this deck is related to our good friend, Mr. Risk Clocks. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> they had my number. Um, the worst thing about it, too, is that I was playing a deck with two Neutron Sharks in it, which means that if I had been more conscientious, I could have taken those things out earlier. But uh, you never think about using the Neutron Shark to blow up an artifact unless it's a real beast artifact like a, uh, a DAV or something like that. So... Sure. Keep that one in mind, folks. Watch out for them for them fonts of the eye. You can find us on Twitter at HFFS Podcast. You can find me at Scuzzy Gruen on Twitter, on Instagram, and of course on the Crucible. Sydney, where can they find you? I am SC Steel on both Discord and TCO. Excellent. Blake, where can they find you? What do you got going on? You can find me on Twitter at uh, Boulevard Blake. That's a BLVD Blake. And as well, Twitch for the same thing. And then my YouTube, Boulevard Paper Fight, BLVD Paper Fight, where I'm putting out, uh, I seem to have settled on a sort of schedule for content that I'm going to be putting out uh, now. So you'll notice that certain days of the week, you will notice uh, there's a particular segment being dropped. Ooh. Interesting. Wonderful conversation. So glad that we got to talk a little Keyforge philosophy and study at the feet of the Keyforge patron saint grandmaster and i guess father of the entire game dr garfield it's been such a pleasure we'll see you again very very soon and until then stay fortunate